Monkey the Lego, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, the Phenomenalist magazine launch at Iflux with Sadia Shirazi, Olivia Han, and Minha Fan. at Eflux. Uh, thanks to everyone for coming out um, for, for, for this August book launch, um, uh, issue launch, and I'll just hand it over to Leopold Lambert, who's the editor and the, the man behind Fanambulist, uh, who will introduce, uh, who will give you a bit of details about the magazine in general, about this issue and um, the issues to come and introduce our speakers. Thanks to everyone for coming. Sorry, re reverse. Are you are you recording? Yeah. yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, that 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 actually will do for the first thank you. Thank you, reverse, for uh, uh, organizing the logistics of these events. It's never so easy. Thank you, Brian, for and all the team of Eflux for hosting it. I'm s could not be more thrilled to be to be here. I think it's great, and thank you for coming out. It's it's uh, really heartwarming to see uh, many fa familiar faces that and uh, some less familiar, but uh, soon to be familiar. Um, and uh, very happy to be back in New York. Uh, as some of you know, I, I left last year back to back to Paris, and uh, and feels good to be back. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I guess just to give you a little bit of uh, a little bit of sense of uh, what we will do tonight I will I will present briefly the magazine itself what uh, what how how it's going to work uh, and the three first issues like uh, it's um, uh, it's it's going to be a magazine published every every two months so the the first issue will be in September then you have the second one in November and the third one in January and then we'll we'll take it from there I guess uh, uh, and uh, and I'm also very thankful that uh, uh, Sadia, Olivia, and Minha accepted to to present their their article tonight. When I sent the email, I was I was I was confident that a, a nice uh, a nice two out of three would would be would be great. And very happily, fortunately, we managed to be the four of us uh, the four of us here, and uh, it's uh, it's really great because as much as I. As much as I, uh, I guess I'm the only person really behind the the phenomenalist. I think it's uh, it's it's a also a, a gigantic collaborative work, uh, as I will, I guess, present a, a little bit as well. I don't I don't know. I guess all of you have different sense of uh, of what what this is all about. Um, so the phenomenalist itself is a is a project that I started. Uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, 2007 or 2010, depending on what key date we, we take, ac actually. Uh, this is a new website, actually. I had to had I had it freshen up to to host the magazine, but uh, you know the blog is still going on. As much as I'll as I'll be able to write something and hopefully make sense on a few issues, but that's still to be proven that remains to be 
Uh, and uh, as in addition of the blog, what the Phenomenalist was doing in the last few years was this podcast, Archipelago, with about a hundred conversation uh, uh, in the past uh, in the past two years. You might you might actually, if you if you look well, you can play this game and try to look to look at all those faces and try to see which one you can recognize in the audience. Uh, uh, that I, I can tell you, there's five or six of them, so you, you might be able to find them at. Maybe I should maybe I should offer a free magazine for the one who finds <laughs> the six of them. <laughs> uh, no, but more seriously, Archipelago has been this uh, this project of uh, of conversations between uh, between uh, I mean me and and people who know so much better what they're talking about when they're talking about something, uh, and so it's been it's been a great great uh, series of encounters and and discussions and and. Uh, um uh, also, very, uh, uh, I mean, like both prof professionally and even quite quite often, also uh, uh, at a at a human level. Human level, it's been it's been fantastic, and in various in various countries of the world. Since uh, I had the generous support of uh, the Graham Foundation in uh, Chicago, and uh, I was able to travel a little bit uh, uh, to. To record some of this conversation, so this will this will still going go on, maybe not as a rate that it used to when I was living here, because eh, you know it's easier to do that in New York than it is in Paris, but you know <laughs> we'll we'll still manage, and uh, and that brings us to the magazine itself and uh, its its first issue. I mean, I'll 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 go a little bit through it uh, um, relatively rapidly, but but uh, you know it's available there if you if you want and. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, so the first issue is really sep September, and um, but I, I yeah, I guess I should maybe present the project of the the magazine itself before even entering into the issue itself. It's a uh, it it's um, I mean, it's very much in the same editorial lines and uh, than the blog has been all those years in trying to bridge uh, the world of design or architecture with the world of, let's say, the humanities or even political activism. Uh, I'm coming from the architecture world, I'm fairly certain that the architecture has a crucial need for uh, discourses coming from the humanities to, um, to intervene. And having, having talked with quite a few people who are uh, more in the world of the humanities, it seems like they're interested to hear a few, quite a few things about design too. So, why why not trying to make those bridge? And uh, I think it's uh, it's also s I mean making bridge between disciplines is also something relatively crucial. And but also in a not necessarily so academical tone tone, uh, which I think is also important to to keep it open and not not fall too much for. Um, I mean, I guess if I say jargon, I'm kind of thinking of what I think of, of things that are too, uh, too expert, but actually th that's also very much needed, but that's not what this magazine is about. Um, a, friend, a friend noticed yesterday that uh, most people don't know what a phenomenalist is, so I, <laughs> I guess that's, that that's kind of <laughs> the first thing I should start with, but it's a, it's a tightrope walker, uh, and the idea behind it is, uh, is coming from the world of architecture where architects uh, draws line, you know, in, and uh, those lines become wall and bodies are, bodies are um, 
forced on one side or the other of the wall. So the phenomenalist, uh, the person who walk on the line is definitely not liberated from the line, quite far from it, but at the same time, um, they're able to to subvert the power of the line. So I, I found a, I found it uh, interesting as a figure and uh, many people ask me if I do practice myself type of walking and the answer is, uh, I guess I maybe I should leave, I should leave a blur here to, but really no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and so well, another aspect uh, that, that I, I was really interested in uh, for this magazine is to, to really not think so much of architecture than design in the broadest meaning of it and therefore at every scale of it. So you'll see the two first issues are quite urban as a scale, but the third one is about, is about uh, fashion, I mean about clothing. So all in a sudden we kind of uh, zoom in this scale of design, and I think I think all of those scales work somehow together in their relation to bodies, and I uh, uh, that's something that I'm interested to uh, ask people to write about. So, yeah, I guess this is pretty much it for the as far as the magazine as itself is, and you know, I mean, as everything, it's a it's a work in progress anyway, so it will have time to readjust itself for whatever need we we feel. Um, and so, talking about the first issue itself, which is admittedly relatively architectural in at least in its contributor and uh, we're lucky to have Sadia here who will present us uh, her article about Lahore. Um, but so the other cities as you can see are, are Cairo, Auckland in California, Jerusalem and, uh, and Beirut. And so the way, the, the, way the, the issue is organized and I think for now at least it's going to be it's going to be always like that. It's with a, a sort of introduction to the topic where uh, I guess I get to enjoy uh, <laughs> giving my opinion, something I <laughs> seems to have a problem not to do. <laughs> uh, but also <laughs> also leaving it open to much more precise and, and, uh, and probably relevant to articles from uh, the people that I'm happy to invite in the to write for the magazine. Uh, in that in that particular case, what uh, what I'm interested to do in this uh, first issue is to say that uh, even though obviously when we think of Jerusalem or, or Cairo, we might we might recognize immediately the militarized characteristic of it, but actually when we think about it, uh, any city in the world that has a, a police has very much militarized uh, characteristic, or even even without speaking about the police has. Uh, Within its urbanism, very much uh, uh, an involvement in the in in a military function uh, and and what I like to call the the organization the forced organization of bodies in space that I think should be the, ar the, the uh, at least is my definition of architecture um, and so and so going a little bit further in each article I'm, I'm interested to have like those case studies that uh, that uh, really give us uh, uh, an account on the, on the all those cities, and uh, actually, as far as the first cities is concerned, everybody who wrote about a city currently live in the city, to the exception of Sadia, who uh, used to live in Lahore, and I think will go back soon as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's very much informed uh, 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 accounts for each city, which I. Uh, particularly enjoy and also uh, having visited 
all of the cities, to the, to the exception of Lahore, I'm able to also um, reflect on what I've been seeing there. Um, so, I mean, Sadia will present you this particular article in a few minutes. But so we also have Cairo that Mohammed El Shahed uh, did a, a, a piece about, as he knows so well to do. Uh, Auckland, that uh, the, the trio of Demilits uh, wrote, uh, wrote about, and the sort of uh, hyper securization of downtown. But so, so you and Jerusalem by uh, Nora Kawi. But so you see how you go from custody to custody, and then and then still everything is connected to the to the issue. But you do have a transcript uh, of um, of uh, of a particular archipelago podcast conversation that relates to the topic, and that's actually the that actually gives me the opportunity to to thank uh, Armit. Uh, uh, who, who uh, has been working tirelessly on uh, transcribing some of these interviews and uh, actually there's some interesting uh, things coming out from it uh, uh, pretty soon so uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been great to again like add uh, one more element of collaboration to for that matter. So I mean in that case it was a conversation with Philip Theophanidis about, about Boston manhunt in, uh, in 2013 and what happens when an entire city becomes under uh, police occupation, so to speak, and under a state of emergency. Uh, I also talk about Baltimore in the, in the introduction because I was writing the text right when the state of emergency was, was being applied. Um, then there is a, a, photography, uh, a photography section because I, I also, also think that beyond text we are able to use other means to express uh, vision on one particular problem. So in that case, it's a very particular uh, uh, examples of photography, which is, uh, which is this uh, sort of Google Earth tool that the Palestinian Authority has access to uh, thanks to the Germans uh, and, uh, and that uh, allows to uh, really um, uh, zoom in all the sort of apartheid apparatuses that Israel has been building in that case, in Jerusalem, but uh, uh, pretty much anywhere else in both the West Bank and Gaza, um, and uh, and that's something that definitely related to the to the topic. So, uh, and uh, last but not least, I've I'm including uh, some student projects from I mean, in the case of the two first issues, architecture students, but uh, it doesn't really matter because I think that's also this. Uh, the school is also a place where uh, some incredible ideas are emerging, and uh, th those of us who, who were are kindly asked sometimes to participate to juries, where we get to see the the student project. And I mean, some 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 of us here were students not a long time ago. <laughs> I see some of them, uh, and. Uh, and I, th I think I think sometimes it it's, it's, it becomes so much more powerful than any any project done with the sort of professional contingencies of, of uh, running running uh, an office and all this kind of thing. So uh, that that was something that I was very attached uh, to. And uh, well, I guess this is this is only half or not at all relevant uh, for, for, for this particular crowd, but uh, being in Paris, I also added a, 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 a booklet of French translation to see 
Uh, maybe for the, the French who doesn't read who doesn't read English, but fortunately there are less and less and uh, less and less of them. So, uh, uh, but yeah, we'll see if it still goes on. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think we should we should let uh, Salia speak uh, speak about her text. I we we spend we spend quite a few minutes to know how we should uh, uh, introduce. Uh, each other, and I think the the best instead of having a sort of like a, a resume uh, status of uh, of each uh, each presenter, uh, mine included, I suppose uh, we we should rather say like what what we've done together so far, which uh, which uh, again like goes behind this idea of collaborating always uh, in various forms. So. Uh, actually, in the case of Sadia, it was already very similar in her participation to the first volume of the Phenomenalist Papers, um, which was a sort of uh, um, in invited guest essay about anything she wanted. And in that case, it was pretty much exactly this, the uh, militarization of Lahore. So in that case, uh, the article is a... Is a is a revisiting uh, text that Sadia had written, and uh, and with a very important maps that she is going to talk about right now. into it right there. Yeah. Okay. Does it work? Does it work? Yes, I hold it up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you, uh, Leopold, for the introduction and congratulations on the magazine launch. It's very beautifully designed. Um, okay. Um, So I prepared to sp to actually present the writing that I contributed for the magazine, and that's I should stay to that script. I should say that script. Okay, I can't tell from everyone's faces what the attention span is, <laughs> but um, but I'll begin reading, and then depending on how faces look, I can abbreviate some of uh, what I've written down um, for your attention span. But thank you guys all for coming also. Um, so my paper is called uh, Lahore's Architecture of Insecurity. And I wanted to show some of the tables that um, contributed towards the, the map that was made um, that is a kind of supplement for the writing uh, that I'm about to um, read to you all. And so these are... Um, this is basically culled from, it was a table that's culled from data that's available online um, or in print sources that I just compiled um, that, as you can see, it's looking at, I mean, one of the, 
I'm wondering if I should talk about this now or later. Um, okay, I'm just gonna keep this up and then I'll read and then I can explain the tables when it comes into the text. Um, so Lahore today looks like a city at war. One of the greatest unacknowledged casualties of the United States war on terror has been the cities and inhabitants of Pakistan. The US invaded Afghanistan in 2001 to oust the Taliban from power in response to the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. In 1985, 16 years prior, President Ronald Reagan equated the Taliban Mujahideen, who had defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan, as, quote, the moral equivalent of America's founding fathers, a capricious stance to say the least. In 2008, the US committed another surge of troops to Afghanistan due to the continued presence of the Taliban in the region while Pakistani military operations were waged in parallel in the northwest regions of the country bordering Afghanistan. Since then, Pakistan has seen a particularly stark backlash within its own borders as a response to its continued collaboration with its close ally, the United States. Militants within the country have retaliated by targeting police and security sites in the cities throughout the country. This is sometimes entangled with attacks against minorities. The city's inhabitants are just one more unsung casualty of this war that connects Lahore and New York City across disparate geographies through the multiple refractions of the legacy of US policy and Pakistani collaboration during the Cold War. Beginning in 2008, Lahore experienced a wave of retaliatory attacks that were both unprecedented in scale and frequency. The attacks were in response to Pakistani military operations in the Northwest that were perceived as occurring at the behest of the United States. The seemingly incessant bomb blasts that escalated from 2008 through 2010 gave rise to a public discourse of fear, anxiety, and paranoia with a sense of incomprehensibility and dismay at the civilian deaths that resulted from the violence. Public response in Lahore to the bomb blasts saw securitization as an effective and justified response to the attacks in which the city as an undifferentiated whole was considered to be under siege by non-state actors. It is a markedly different thing to say that the attacks post-2008 in Lahore were primarily targeted at police and security services than to say that Lahore is being indiscriminately bombed. The repercussions of these blasts are now so interwoven into the daily experiences of the city's inhabitants that youth particularly cannot remember nor imagine the city otherwise. Bomb blasts today persist in the urban psyche and endure through the markers of securitization that populate this now considerably altered city. It is increasingly difficult to gauge safety in Lahore, to situate the reality of lived experience against the symbols proliferating in the city that continue to mark it as unsafe. The response to the attacks has given rise to what I describe as Lahore's architecture of insecurity. So I was interested, I'm interested in tracing the emergence of these securitized zones in the city and the way power inscribes itself in urban space through an architecture of what I'm calling in slash security. Parallel with this is my interest in using cartography as an analytic and resistant tool to interrogate and render architectures of what I call insecurity more transparent. By architecture, I mean structural and conceptual approaches to space. Uh, following I.L. Wiseman's work on Israel's architecture in the occupied Palestine territories, in which he studies both the way architecture sustains the occupation and how it can help us understand politics as constructed physical realities. 
New modes of representation, the hope is, can create alternative images of the city that help us to imagine what already exists. My hope is that this provokes us to critique the production of space and its relationship to power and to resist discourses of securitization and to ask the question of how else can we use radical cartography as a tool to inform practices that resist this architecture of insecurity and confront its elastic territories and modes of enclosure. If we move from Henry Lefebvre's right to the city to David Harvey's insistence that a right to the city is not just about access, but also about a common right, we can begin to think along with Fred Moten and Stefano Harney's theorization of the undercommons. This can begin to help us think outside of policy, the rights rhetoric, and access to the commons, and more about planning, practices of resistance, and the space of the undercommons. So it was in response, um, this project actually was in response to heated arguments with my mother regarding whether and how safe Lahore actually was, that I began this entire research and cartographic project about the bomb blasts. Um, very heated debates, I should say. Um, that have since subsided after I've shown her the maps and we've discussed all of this stuff. But I wanted to make sense of this paradigm of insecurity, that I'm calling it, and began to consider ways to visualize information regarding the blasts. Um, and this is where I'm telling you that there is really a sense in public and in these spaces that the city itself overall was being bombed and there wasn't a kind of organized sense of what it was that we were afraid of, what inhabitants in Lahore were afraid of, and what it was that the securitization was a response to, which I think is not particular to only, as Leopold was saying, Cairo or Lahore, but also very much to New York, Los Angeles. I mean, we can, Houston, I don't know, right? So it's not, a part, it's not particular to any kind of part of the world, but I think it's just an urban condition and an issue of kind of the police and securitization of the state. Um, so I wanted to make sense of the paradigm of insecurity and began to consider ways to visualize information regarding the bomb blasts. And so this is where I began combing through publicly available information on bomb blasts, sites, casualties, uh, perpetrators, and assembled the data into a table from 1997 onwards. In the span of 10 years, from 1997 through 2007, and that's why the be table begins with 2000, um, begins with 2008, so it's going back. Okay, so beginning in 1998. Um, so from 1997 through 2007, the span of 10 years, I saw there were only two bomb blasts in Lahore, both targeting the minority Shia community. And these attacks occurred in 1998 and 2004, um, and you know, this table, for example, has the location, it has the date, it has how many uh, casualties there were, how many deaths, the um, mode of attack, and then notes, you know, for example. Um, and so you see that in 1998 and 2004, it was primarily targeting a minority Shia community. Um, there were no attacks from 2004 through th 2007. Uh, beginning in 2008, um, Lahore experienced a series of high-intensity bomb blasts concentrated in the colonial city, which is the old city, at targets such as the high court, police headquarters, the federal investigative authority headquarters. None of the 2008 attacks targeted minorities. So you can see um, the scale of these attacks is really quite large, um, and the deaths resulting from it were also, were also great. Um, 
So it was clear to me after completing this table that in 2008, the character, location, and intensity of the blasts altered considerably, which corresponded with the US surge in Afghanistan that same year, and military operations that were conducted in coordination by Pakistan for the US. Each subsequent year has resulted in an escalation of those attacks, from five to two th in 2008 to 10 in 2009 to 15 in 2010, after which attacks subsided, with three most recently in 2012. So this work ends in 2012. Um, so there were three in 2012, one in 2013, and two in 2015. These recent attacks were on, uh, in 2015, were on, uh, on the minority Christian community. So most high-impact blasts were claimed by militants ranging from Tahriki Taliban in Pakistan to Lashkari Jangvi, while others, such as the horrific attack on Data Ganjbaksh, also known as Data Darbar, is a shrine revered by Sunni and Shias, um, is still uh, unaccounted for. A series of low-intensity copycat bombs, usually targeting cultural sites such as music halls and theaters, have also occurred and are unclaimed. Visualizing the information, um, has made many things legible that were otherwise obscured. Today, in the, aftermath, in the aftermath of the bomb blast, the most visible manifestation of a regime of control is legible in the preponderance of security measures distributed throughout the city against the specter of non-state violence. Walls, barriers, gates, and checkpoints crop up overnight, while others calcify over time into permanent structures in residential quarters, religious sites, civic spaces, governmental and police zones. The security apparatuses deline delineate boundaries, block vehicular and pedestrian access, restrict entry, and alter the city's urban fabric. In civic spaces, barriers and checkpoints shrink public space and encroach upon inhabitants' ability to access, circulate, and gather without hindrance. In residential blocks, securitization indicates that a family or community is fortifying its boundaries against some outside threat. The representation of an insecure city emerges from the dominance of these objects, which are both the artifacts and performance of its control. This is further legitimized through discursive frameworks and violence enacted by state and non-state actors alike. What relationship these regimes of securitization have to the onslaught of bombings post-2008 and to threats from outside the city is almost impossible to disentangle from increased securitization within the city against its own residents. The state and non-state together preserve the state of insecurity through recourse to a violence that feels unending, that is only subject to pause. After 2008, the bombings after the 2008 bombings, the city officially issued an ordinance to public institutions recommending that they increase the height of their walls from six to eight feet. Residential quarters took note and did the same. So the city grew taller and less transparent overnight. At a basic level, a wall of course limits your access to space, blocking, um, either blocking, delaying, or rerouting movement. But a wall is also a tool of opacity. It keeps you from seeing into spaces. So if you drive or walk along Mall Road, which is a, part, you know, is a huge kind of civic space in the colonial city, the deep perspectival vistas uh, have become shallow. Boards are also played over the perimeter gates of universities such as Punjab University and the National College of the Arts, altering what was a visually permeable boundary line and making it opaque. The result of these security measures is increased opacity and a flattening of urban spaces. This obliteration of transparency is a newer strategy of control that moves from the physicality of the body to that of the gaze. 
citizens are effectively, well, inhabitants are effectively cordoned off from using and even seeing these civic spaces that are inaccessible and now also invisible. So it's inconceivable that these are actually making the city safer. Um, it is inconceivable that it's making the civic spaces any safer. Um, and instead, they're more le legible, as I mentioned, as performances of security. Um, and in Lahore particularly, if you look closely at the material of the walls, the bricks and mortar belie their age, and a line appears where the additional increments of brick begin. This horizon line is legible throughout the city. It's a horizon denoting fear. The counterpoint to the fixity of walls and the flattening of visual depth in Lahore is the movable barrier, the checkpoint. Checkpoints have a ghostly quality, can appear and disappear, expand and contract throughout the day and night. They exploit this architecture of impermanence in their self-presentation as temporary objects. Checkpoints, unlike walls and barriers, engage the social realm in addition to blocking access to space, creating zones of opacity and delineating particular boundaries. The checkpoints exclude, produce hierarchy, and restrict access through state agents who are empowered to monitor social behavior and control flows of circulation. Security details at checkpoints in Lahore routinely harass and demand bribes from drivers, discriminating based on class, gender, caste, ethnicity, and likeliness of stimulant and narcotic consumption. Um, the public discourse on safety considers the bomb blasts as a result of actions of people coming from outside of the city, ostensibly non-Lahoris. But through this infrastructure of insecurity, the figure of the foreigner as outsider and terrorist is collapsed into tensions regarding difference that arise from within Lahori society that have to do with caste difference, um, emigration, etc. In the affluent residential area of cantonment, for example, checkpoints are now toll booths. So when I was there in 2012, they had just been installed. In 2011, 2012, they were um, checkpoints. And now, if you live in the cantonment area, you have a kind of ID that lets you go through it like a toll booth. And if you don't have that, you have to stop and be checked. Um, so what was a temporary structure put in place after the bombings is now concretized into a permanent entity. The Defense Housing Authority, DHA, is another case in point. This upper-class residential development is managed by the military and has checkpoints, guards, and barriers placed at points of entry between it and Chararpind, a village that actually predates the construction of defense, which you can't tell if you go there. It looks as if this kind of organic structure is somehow arisen after the development of this suburb when in fact it predates the development of that suburb. Um, any departure from the village necessitates traveling through defense, the suburb, the kind of elite suburb, in which many of the residents are actually employed as domestic labor. As a result, the residents of Charar are de facto criminalized and policed as potential threats. The spatial arrangement of concrete barriers at the village's policed entrance forces people and vehicles to navigate through it slowly with the checkpoint functioning as a space of compression that moves unidirectionally. The interior of the village is involuted and becomes an outside captured within the new suburban residential development of defense, which strangulates it. This checkpoint targets class and caste difference in a way that distinguishes it from the temporary checkpoints that surface on Mall Road in the, in the kind of colonial old city and the toll booth and cantonment. So we have kind of different, you know, there's a grain of, um, there's a grain of difference of these checkpoints and the kind of populations going through it that it's policing. Discussions regarding the rise of securitization after the pervasive bomb blasts elides this internal friction between class and caste, villagers, suburban residents, military developers, and foreigners. 
In its most pernicious aspect, securitized responses to perceived threats from within the city are constantly justified by invoking the refrain of threats from outside, by which the architecture of insecuritization surreptitiously continues while the city has not become any safer for its actual inhabitants. We have to question whether securitization processes indicate a safer city or one that is made all the more threatening through these devices and practices. It is also critical that we disentangle the idea of the foreigner, citizen, and resident in order to see just whom it is that the city is protecting itself from. The city and state, I should say, is protecting itself from. Since 2012, when I finished the research for this project, a new spate of bombings occurred in which the targets are claimed by an ever-expanding network of non-state actors that includes ethnic separatists and Pakistani Taliban splinter groups. The most recent attacks in 2015 include an attack on a police headquarters and a Christian church. The increased securitization by state actors has to be rendered visible and interrogated alongside attacks by non-state actors, particularly at this time when securitization grows, while targeted assassinations on individuals and minorities continues unabated in the city. I began this essay by writing that Lahore looks like a city at war. After having described both the increased securitization measures alongside the deductions I was able to make based on my mapping um, and tabulation of the blasts, the question that remains is who exactly are we at war with? Thank you. Thank you so much, Sadia. And um, while you were talking, I was uh, I was uh, thinking that I I really I really hope that uh, the specificity of an article like Sadia's really reflect on this on the on the ar the, the argument that's carried throughout the the issue itself, but also throughout the magazine itself and. Hopefully, when you'll hear those three uh, uh, great presentation tonight, you'll be able to uh, to get what is um, what is this sort of uh, argument behind behind uh, topics that seem so different from each other, but actually that are so deeply related, uh, and which is this, this sort of violent uh, uh, violent. Um, uh, implication of design upon the bodies. Um, <laughs> uh, so that that drives us to the second issue, which is currently in the making, and that will come out in November first uh, of this year, and uh, that will question uh, the suburban geographies um, through again various examples with the exact same structure um, um, uh, than, the, than the first one. Uh, so uh, it's written Long Island here, but it's really the, the, the American suburbia uh, and in relation to gender will, will be presented today by uh, Olivia Ahn. And, um, but it, and it will also be put in relation with a transcript of a a transcript of a, a conversation I've been having with uh, Karen Thompson, who, who writes about queer suburban imaginaries on the in the sort of gigantic uh, Los Angeles suburbia, 
and how does how does space? Uh, I mean, Olivia I is uh, I well. I guess we did. We said we would not define who who <laughs> who we are, but well, okay, too late. <laughs> Olivia is an architect, and she she has this incredibly precise um, look on how architecture as an apparatus of a spatial apparatus is able to to very much act on on. Uh, on gender and produces gender, as she as she will as she will tell us. Um, and uh, another another suburb that I'm particularly attached to describe is a uh, is a Paris suburb, the banlieue, and how incredibly segregated uh, this uh, suburban uh, urban typology is. I mean, it's uh, I mean you you you. Paris is a city where the the the, the fortress walls were turned into a highway, an elevated highway, and very much still act as fortre fortre fortress wall, thus uh, uh, separating itself and everything it contains, uh, everything such a centralized city contains uh, to, uh, to its periphery that uh, obviously for most of it is, uh, is inhabited by, uh, by uh, working class and, uh, and uh, families coming from several waves of immigration uh, through time. So it's, it's also a very deeply, in addition of being a social issue, it's a very much ra racialized issue as well. Um, so the text about Paris here is written by uh, Hassan Belmessus, who uh, writes about how the French military has been formed to potentially intervene within the banlieue uh, in the case of uh, an insurrection. Uh, something that was particularly true during Sarkozy's administration, but since he's coming back, uh, we should we should uh, we should uh, uh, we should be ready. And and uh, I mean, the political climate in France is nowhere close from being anywhere safe. So uh, <laughs> I'm very worried about all those things. But um, since since it is very much within the Phenomenalist magazine's uh, ambition to to really not just describe uh, Western cities or Western issues. Uh, we have three other texts that are um, that are going to be uh, I mean that are that are fantastic. Uh, one uh, written by Antonadia Borges uh, about Brasilia and its uh, its satellite cities, and how especially architects have a, a sort of um, uh, have have a mythical idea of what Brasilia is, but basically uh, Brasilia as a sort of uh, architecture, architectural master masterpiece is is only uh, only uh, uh, something like ten percent hosting ten percent of its population. Uh, Tina Grandinetti, who wrote a text about Rawabi, which is like this new town that the Palestinian Authority and and developers coming from both Palestine and uh, Qatar are building outside of Ramallah as uh, a way to host the Palestinian middle class that is very much normalizing the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. And so she's describing both uh, sp spatially the city and as well uh, the sort of social uh, consequences and, uh, and, um, and, and obviously within the Palestinian struggle what it could possibly mean to have such a... Uh, uh, such an in, uh, I mean, such a problematic city hosting a middle class that, for some of some some of it, has even benefited from the occupation. And then uh, Angelo Fick will write about the uh, about Johannesburg and how 
how the suburbs of Johannesburg are organized in a way that obviously has a lot to do with uh, uh, the apartheid and how it's uh, how it specially expresses itself. Um, so Olivia is going to present her text about uh, about the suburban house as a as a as a mechanism as an apparatus of gender production, um, in particular uh, regarding uh, uh, heteronormativity. And uh, that's a conversation we already had actually for Archipelago for the podcast. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a conversation between her and her and me that uh, I always very much appreciate to have, and uh, and that uh, Olivia Olivia did uh, an entire thesis dedicated to this issue, and also trying to find as an architect some 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 uh, intervention. Not as not at all to to change. Uh, I mean, not at all to solve a problem, but just to to intervene as an architect politically within this apparatus. Um, but anyway, I'm already talking too much, and uh, I think you should uh, you should uh, present to everyone your 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 work. Uh, and uh, the article uh, the article is layout, so you even get to see what it looks like. Thank you for that introduction, Leopold, and thanks everyone for having me here. Um, the, the article obviously isn't completely finished, but it's really nice to see the draft in, in this format. Um, in terms of American suburbia and gender production, as well as exclusion and misrepresentation, um, my research is focused on creating and curating a cultural survey of how post-war American suburbia was conducive to creating certain gender archetypes, perpetuating how certain gender roles were viewed, as well as marketed and upheld in various consumerist outlets, media, and the infrastructure of suburbia itself. Um, I look at Levittown, Long Island, which was one of the first master planned suburbs in New York, built between 1947 and 1951, as this kind of site to begin to look at the first model homes, how they were marketed, and how certain gendered bodies were guaranteed access or denied access to these particular architectural typologies of suburban domesticity. I say um, gendered bodies given access or denied access because there is a lot of political architectures, if I may call them, that allowed allowed that kind of access to a heterotopia by um, by hetero um, heterosexual engendered um, bodies. And this this roots itself in the importance and sanctity of the nuclear family and how it was marketed at the time in conjunction with the ads corollary to marketing these homes. So this is a, this is a really interesting juxtaposition in the multiplicity of these homes waiting to be occupied by these very white heteronormative families. Um, kind of lauded in, in its accolades. Um, 
I think it's really important that I present it in this way because in in how um, certain gender, gender roles are perpetuated through marketing, the layout of suburbia also furthers this in the sense that the culture or lack of culture placed in the suburbs is inherent to keeping these gendered roles ascribed to the woman the woman in the home and the archetype of the housewife or the aspiring housewife um, to exist as the home as the stage for homemaking and production of the family. So the lack of cultural infrastructures in the suburbs is is very inten- is intentional, but is also can be accredited to federal oversight. And that's why the culture that is inherent to the suburbs is very based in a car-dependent consumerist culture, which is why you have programs that don't delve into art centers, but strip malls, supermarkets, and the occasional public library or school. Um, Another narrative arc that I tap into is shortly after these advertisements in pushing a certain level of heteronormativity and the archetype of the housewife or aspiring housewife to those that weren't married um, is this reclamation of domesticity by um, by the creation of Playboy magazine in, in 1953. And I follow the line of thought uh, in Paul B. Preciado's work, Pornotopia, which is essentially an essay that roots itself in biopolitics of how Playboy sought to masculinize the feminine domestic in terms of reclaiming the interior domestic space for the for the gender-produced male th- through post-war suburban culture in trying to subvert the equal yet opposite archetype of the breadwinner, the male breadwinner of the house. Uh, The third arc of third narrative I'm looking at is also how the the creation of the pill in 1960 creates certain other demands of the gender-produced archetype of the housewife in that she can have a certain level of productivity that is demanded of her, of her body in cr- producing offspring and if you in the creation of the pill and in inserting that into the archetype and re- and removing her productivity as a mother figure she suddenly regains access to other spaces so it's this predication upon how are these internal architectures of the self and of the body giving that giving that body access or denied access to other spaces. So in the in having the pill and removing an engendered role of of producing offspring and not having that hinge upon whether you become a homemaker, you suddenly gain access into the workforce um which which is what many um many accredit the pill granting that capability for housewives to participate in the workforce and have that um, 
ease into that life of being a homemaker, but also a courier woman. Um, a lot of this research works to discuss how the pill creates a certain domestic domesticization of feminine sexuality in terms of the management of her, the management and facilitation of her desire or her libido or her desire to be productive within the domestic space and contributing to the perpetuation of the nuclear family. Um, and it's looked at as a, as a counter argument to what I'm focusing in on how Playboy is trying to reclaim the domestic space for the gender produced male breadwinner in the sense that it breaks down that um, his necessity to provide, to create the home but then also creates alternative spaces for ma masculinity of a domestic interior through the through Playboy's creation of terminal architectural terminologies of the Playboy penthouse or the bachelor pad, for example. Um, so there's all these kind of vast and, and varied narratives that talk about how gender is produced or maybe misrepresented and provides access or exclusion of these bodies if they decide to participate in these very small elemental structures that change their body architecture and then give them access or, de or deny them access to other physical architectures of private or public and or domestic or the workforce and et cetera. And I think that in many ways I was looking at in the broader scope, I was looking at how bodies were moved from the cities to the suburbs in in the foundation of suburbia, um, where you have a, a very specific demographic being targeted to be pushed there and to create this community, and it, in the sense that white upper middle class families were given the most federal uh, outlets in terms of the GI Bill, as well as the creation of um, the Federal Housing Association um, to to make it easier to, to obtain these architectures, to access these architectures based on an, their own inherent body architectures that allowed them to, to, to inhabit them. Um, in commenting on the Federal Housing Association, um, certain federal law that stemmed out of that was the creation of redlining in terms of zones, zoning through federal documentation of where these shifting demographics would be easy, easiest to facilitate from cities to suburbs. Um, and now, in retrospect, not to make too much of a of an uh, of an assumption and a very vast assumption, is that perhaps now there is a inverse relationship where there is a very privileged demographic that is sh actually shifting in the opposite direction into the cities and the mass-produced suburb that facilitates a, a familial uh, nuclear family domesticity is, is occurring now in, in the mass uh, residential properties sprouting out throughout our, our urban geographies today. Um, So that so that is a very broad survey of what my article is trying to incorporate. It's a little vast and varied and maybe <laughs> convoluted <laughs> here and there, 
but I think um, in juxtaposing these many narratives, um, it tries to achieve ways that from the 1940s to the 60s, how different things in, in media, in consumer culture, as well as, as, well as pharma pharmaceutical culture has sought to control gender roles, uh, interpretations, identities, desires, as well as produce uh, new architectures for these genders to exist in or, or be excluded by or to access. Thank you so much, Olivia. And uh, I think, uh, I mean, this way you have a, a absolutely fantastic uh, um, overview of how all the scales of design can incredibly connect, right? Because you, you were talking about suburbia and the sort of uh, um, organization of a territory at the scale of an entire country, or I mean, in the case of the US, we could almost say a continent. And it's put in relation with something as small as the contraceptive pill as both simultaneously acting on, on bodies and, and constructing behaviors and uh, localization in space. So I think that's, that's exactly what, uh, what I'm interested to talk about in this magazine. So I, I think for, for that, this article is so incredibly great to, to really be able to articulate all those scales together. Um, and um, so thank you. <laughs> Uh, going to the going to the third issue, which, as you will understand, is <laughs> is not so well defined so far, uh, and to 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 the to the degree that we actually in the conversation, like ten minutes before we started, we even renamed the issue. So that's that's to tell you how much it's undefined. So it might not be clothing politics, which is good because I cannot pronounce it well anyway. Uh, it it be sartorial politics. Uh, it has time to change again, but uh, but what uh, what uh, what is for sure within this issue is uh, the 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 sort of uh, interest of those last two years, let's say, for how um, cl how clothing is uh, is very much incorporating a similar uh, action upon the body as architecture would. Uh, this interest has been very very much uh, uh, influenced. I mean, uh, I, I would even say started by the work that Minha, Pham, and uh, uh, Mimi Tianyuan have been doing on their blog called Thread Bear. Uh, in addition of all their incredible other things they've been, they're working on their own, uh, on their own, uh, in their own research. Uh, but uh, really looking at this piece of design that, I mean, you know, we're all wearing clothes right now like that and it's it's incredible how <laughs> little we tend to think of, of it as such a such a, a political uh, having having political implication and obviously uh, ob obviously the least we think the least we think about it the more we might have an idea of where we stand regarding the norms and within society as well and I think that was very much the question of the body as well I think uh, uh, we we understand it as much as uh, society puts it in our face of what is a body, and uh, and we're not all equal in that matter. For uh, and uh, and I think that's 
that's also been for me a learning process uh, uh, through the through the idea of the, the through this object of the clothes uh, and uh, and so I'm very happy to have Minha and Mimi actually both writing uh, each an article in this in this issue um, and uh, as well as having a transcript of the of a conversation I've been having with uh, Hannah Tajima which it's right here so I'm very happy we have one more contributor in the room. Uh, Pretty much half of the room right now is involved with something at some point, so that's 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 like I makes me so happy, really. Uh, and so again, like going to another scale, but that somehow could connect so well with uh, that could connect so well with the two other the, the two other research. If you think about it, I mean, you don't the, it's it's so immediate. Uh, and so we we will have Minha uh, talking to us about this very particular high heel shoes that are designed for, uh, as strange as it sounds, uh, a, an Asian food. <laughs> and uh, she'll tell you more about it. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm sorry. I forgot to say what we did together so far, which is actually fairly recent. Uh, we got to write a text together, uh, uh, which has a, a funny title. It's called Spinoza in a T-shirt. Uh, and I think it reflects well the fun we've been having writing it together, which is very much a dialogue on, on things we've been uh, talking about and uh, both in our own uh, discipline, so to speak, uh, and, and that totally connects with each other in relation to how do we design for particular bodies and how when we even think we design for a body we actually do not know, we still, we're still not, we still, um, at risk of, of uh, assuming too many things about what a body might be. So the subtitle of the text was uh, Manifesto for Design that Doesn't Know What a Body Isn't. So like double negations that was reflected upon it within the text. And, uh, and we, we also took the risk of, uh, of actually citing a few designers who might be worth Looking at, you know, no one's perfect, especially when you do something as crucial as, as designing something. And I think that's all the work I've been doing in the past. I really hope that it never discouraged anyone to design. Uh, it's not because everything we design is problematic and potentially violent that we should stop designing. And uh, no, I know it sounds, it sounds crazy like that, but I mean, I think that's exactly why we should keep designing and inform around political manifesto with this weapon of ours. Uh, so anyway, I'm sorry, I got a bit long, a bit long here, but uh, uh, Minha will talk, us about talk to us about this very particular high heel shoe. Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking around. Um, and I, I also want to just congratulate Leopold and thank him um, for for this and for the many conversations that we've had together. I've learned so much from him. It's, it's really incredible. I really feel lost behind this thing. Um, um, so I'm going to be really quick. This doesn't come out until January, and I'm still working on it. So I can tell you a little bit about the object that I'm writing about, which is this weird um, high heel shoe. Rupert Sanderson, who is a British luxury shoe company, um, a few years ago, came up with an idea that um, Asian consumers didn't fit into Western shoes, right? So that there was something, a typology called an Asian foot, 
And what he believed was that Asian women's feet were more narrow and they had a higher arch than um, West, their Western counterparts, as he put it. So he put together a mold for a new shoe um, that looks from the outside exactly like one of his most popular high heel pumps, four inch pump called the Winona, but the new shoe made for Asians is called the Hong Kong because of course it is, right? <laughs> um, this was so popular that he, two years later, created an entire collection of shoes called the Gold Collection. And the reason it's called the Gold Collection is because it's, it's got the signature 23-carat gold leaf heel. And before doing this research, I actually didn't know there was such a thing as 23-carat gold. I thought it was like 24, right? So I, I don't know what that is. Maybe that's a British thing. Um, so the, the gold collection actually has multiple heights, not just the pump, right? But I'm going to talk about the first one, really, the pump, and think about a little bit, what does this mean about where we're at in fashion? What does this mean about this question of fashion and race? We know that race, racial thinking, racial ideas, and when I say race, I always mean gender and sexuality, right? You can't talk about race without talking about gender, sexuality, and class. Um, we, we know, especially for those of you who are living in New York City, but also in Paris, I think, or France, right? We know that racial ideas get imposed on clothing, right? So in Brooklyn, for example, you can get fined for having saggy pants, right? You all know this. Did you guys know this? Yes. This is, this is an ordinance, yeah. right? And of course, the bodies that are being policed, right, fashion policed, you can imagine, are not, you know, the, the white skater d kid, right, in, in Union Square, right? So this is a, this is a kind of, um, this is the kind of way that race gets imposed, racial thinking gets imposed on certain kinds of clothes, saggy pants. In France and other parts of Europe, we know that the same kinds of um, racial, racially gendered thinking get imposed on, right, modest fashion, right, in, in, different, in different ways. Um, what's so interesting about what we're seeing here is that there's a trend in which race isn't being imposed, racial thinking isn't being imposed on fashion, right, from the outside, but actually is embedded inside fashion. So I'm arguing in this, in this um, article and my, my work in general is thinking about how race is actually embedded in the design of fashion, right? Um, and so that it's all, it's, it's made into it. Race is shaping the shoe, right? Um, when Sanderson came out with this shoe, almost immediately after the shoe became public and you know people were writing about it, there was kind of a, a, a reveal all expose, right? It turns out that there's no such thing as an Asian foot, right? There's, no, there's actually not one monolithic Asian foot. And it was, it was kind of like, uh, there was, it was a splashy news item and it was sort of a tabloid style tell-all, right? Oh my God, Sanderson made up this idea of an Asian foot. Um, so that's, that's interesting, except it's not because no one really believes that all Asian women have the same foot, right? No one could actually believe that. So what's really interesting to me is not that Sanderson is wrong, right, but still how racial thinking made the shape of this shoe. So the shoe itself is more narrow, and it's got more support in the arch, right, which is, is um, supposed to be a kind of racially inclusive design, right, to help 
Asians who need who, whose bodies need that kind of extra extra support, right? Um, that the, that the functioning of the Asian body could actually be enhanced by that kind of support. So what's interesting to me about it is not that that there's no such thing as an Asian foot, but the what was the Asian foot that that Sanderson had in mind? It turns out that he actually just um, <laughs> he has an Asian partner, an Asian female partner, and he looked at her foot and saw that it was thinner and it has a high arch. And so the f these shoes are actually created from the casting of a single foot, and it's hers. Her name is Teresa Wong. Um, it's, it's created from that fashion. But you know, if it seems ridiculous to us that anyone could think that one race of people and, and within the, the category of Asian, how many Asian ethnicities are there, right? Like how is it, and even wi um, within those ethnicities, is it even, could we really imagine that every Vietnamese woman has the same foot, right? S but what was interesting to me is why did it seem so plausible to us, right? Why was this designed? And I also want to add that Sanderson isn't the only one. Immediately after Sanderson debuted his shoe, um, Louboutin, Christian Louboutin, and... Um, I'm going to forget. Oh, uh, Salvatore Far Ferragamo also came up with their own Asian designed, made for Asian shoe collection. Um, and this, again, isn't, they're not the only ones. Prada also decided she was going to design for Asians um, when she debuted her collection at um, Beijing for the first time. She got rid of all of her cotton dresses and remade them in silk because we all know that Asians love silk. And also added a ton, I mean, there's pictures, a ton of sequins. And I don't know where that stereotype comes from, but just tons of sequins because Chinese women love sequins. Um, again, so this idea of, you know, the Asian, the Asian taste, the Asian body um, is becoming really important in fashion today. And th those of you who follow the global economy at all and what's going on in the world, you know that there are these emerging markets in Asia, right, where Asian consumers are starting to become really, really important to not only luxury fashion brands, but also to um, mass market fashion brands. I could, I, I could talk about Gap. I do in the essay. I won't hear. Um, but Gap also has its own Asian <laughs> thing. Um, so there's, there's, two, there's two typologies happening, right? There's this kind of imagined idea of what Asian women's feet look like. And um, doing this research, I actually did a Google search. If you ever want to really scare yourself, do a Google search for Asian women's feet and, and stand back. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> um, lots of fetish sites. A lot, I mean, it's all like the first three pages of a Google search are fetish sites. Um, and some of, most of them are amateur sites where basically women, Asian women are just taking off their shoe. I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing. Um, <laughs> so, so on the one hand, we have this, you know, cultural, this cultural typology of what an Asian, you know, dainty, small, et cetera, right? And then on the other hand, we have this idea, this other kind of, I don't know, um, cultural economic typology of the Asian consumer as being a particular kind of new money consumer, right? Tons of money to spend, but not quite at the taste level that New Yorkers would like, because no New Yorker walks around with a bunch of sequins on them, right? So, so I'm looking at how these two kinds of cultures of, of um, 
thinking about race, the, the, the kind of cultural frameworks of thinking about race, actually go into the design of clothes. And, and like I said, I'm using Sanderson as just a kind of case study, but he's actually part of a larger trend that we're seeing right now that is really different. I mentioned the Prada with the sequence. Rup Sanderson's doing something different because he's, he's going beyond just you know taste considerations, right? The shoe, the Asian shoe looks exactly like the, the shoes for, for Western women, and I don't know where Asian American women fall into his, his thinking. Um, but the Asian shoe looks exactly, what's different is that it's internally engineered for Asian women, right? So this is a little bit different than throwing sequins on a dress. Um, so I'm actually gonna stop there. That's, that's, that's what I'm working on. I'm still working on it. I, um, after I sent Leopold a draft this afternoon, I was walking down the street to get a sandwich and it came to me, this great idea for a title and I'm terrible at titles. Um, this isn't the title. The, um, so, so the title of this for now is thinking about how, you know, we, we talk about race being a social construct. Um, thinking about how race might be a sartorial construct. How does race get constructed through fashion design, right? And how does that construct bodies and how does that construct spaces? Because if you put my foot, which is actually not a narrow foot, though I have a high arch, um, <laughs> if you put my foot in that shoe, I'm gonna have a hard time, I'm gonna have a hard time walking a four inch heel anyway. I, I do three inches and below is my limit. Um, but you know, how you move through space, right? Fashion actually it produces those kinds of spaces as well, the spaces around you and how you move. So that's, that's, what, that's what you have to look forward to in January. And I know Mimi's work is um, really amazing, as many of you probably know. So, um, and this is the first, this is the launch of the magazine, and I haven't heard Leopold say it yet, so I'm gonna say it. Buy the magazine, it's back there, <laughs> right? Buy the magazine, it's gorgeous, as you can see. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, you can already see how I'm going to be. I have trouble being a businessman. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, buy the magazine, please, if you want, <laughs> if you can. Uh, um, oh, it's, it's, it's $12. Uh, but the, the digital version, I feel, you see, that's crazy. It's like, you talk oh about money, and, and it's like, whoa. Oh, uh, cheap. Uh, <laughs> uh, the digital version is also uh, accessible on the website uh, for, for $6. Um, uh, well, making the transition, I, I also <laughs> also wanted to say that uh, for who, whoever is going to visit me in Paris, uh, you might be you might want to know that there's also some uh, strange sartorial uh, rules. Um, the in Paris specifically, there is a police ordinance uh, that is technically still at work, where a woman can get arrested for wearing men's clothing. So, how about that? <laughs> And every every time every time we have like a few a few uh, uh, council uh, city council members who wants to change that, people say that uh, it's it's uh, it's a non-problem. Uh, um, anyway, I, I won't be I won't be much longer uh, because I think uh, I think we can have also a few questions and uh, um, be very interesting to to. Uh, probably engage a few conversation, uh, I guess, in a either a formal way right here or in a casual way. There's 
there might be a bit of wine left, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm too far. Uh, but I guess, uh, I guess I should insist quite a little bit about how uh, this project definitely needs support. And I have this, um, I had this idea to kind of give it a sort of symbolical, uh, like walking along kind of thing, uh, where the subscription do not work per uh, year, like it usually is. It works per month. Uh, so it's like uh, five euro a month, so like a bit less than six dollars. And you, you get your the printed version like every, every, two, other every two months. Uh, but, but it's a sort of, you know, I mean, I, I hope you get the, the spirit of it in, in the sense of, uh, in the sense of like every month showing a little bit of support for this project. And uh, uh, I, I, I will really, really try my best to have as many open access, uh, uh, open access information as there's been so far. Uh, both through the blog and the podcast, but uh, obviously there's an economy behind it, which also involves uh, uh, re retributing labor that is put in it, uh, however symbolically for the moment. Uh, but uh, so I mean, you know, as I say, if you can, if you want, if you, <laughs> uh, a, a subscription is a nice is a nice form of support, and uh, and you don't get to worry about shipping fees or all that bullshit. So. Uh, I'm sorry, all that headache, uh, and uh, but I'm I'm very very happy to to start this adventure tonight with you, and uh, and uh, even more so to 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 have to be four to do so and uh, and uh, to really reflect on these collaborative works and this project is so thank you very much, and uh, yeah let's let's have uh, let's have some uh, some conversation first in a formal way and then in in a more casual way around a few a few drink of whatever whatever will be left <laughs> thank you very much uh, also we are recording for archipelago right now the audio so if you want to ask a question maybe raise your hand and uh, i guess i will bring you a, a microphone Thank you so much for your Anyone? Wow, it's been that clear? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're awesome. <laughs> no? Yeah? No? Okay. Well, I mean, if, if it was... Ah, oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> you always have to do that. It's like, okay, no question. <laughs> Thank you guys for your um, presentations, which were really wonderful. I had a question for Sadia. Um, I really, really loved your presentation, and I was wondering if you could say more about... Um, well, I had a couple questions. One, just like, it seemed like what you were saying was that there was like not a clear relationship between where the bombings were and where the checkpoints and security infrastructure mm -hmm. was. And if you could say a little more about that. And then the other question is just about, um, like, I guess all the, th the three different modes of visualize, like specifically you were talking about how like the state is trying to make it difficult, right, to visualize mm -hmm. 
um, what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about like how you sort of tried to make that visible because I, I thought it was really effective. So yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you, Amal, um, for your question. Uh, and they're both very kind of sensitive and particular, I think, observations of the presentation and. Um, I hope that it was clear. You know, I know I was reading the paper a bit, so it becomes hard to emphasize certain things. But the um, your first question is about um, I'm blanking, but you asked about the oh right. So you know, when I say that I was arguing with my mother about how safe or unsafe Lahore is, it primarily revolved around this idea that the bombings were happening happening indiscriminately and that there were civilian deaths. Right, that's very unusual in a sense. And what the mapping, the kind of creating the table and creating the map uh, showed me was that the highest density of the blasts were in the centralized state um, and police centers in the colonial city. But the checkpoints that have arisen have arisen um, in the, what I call the, basically for lack of um, better terminology, but the elite neighborhoods. So the checkpoints don't correspond to, you know, and the in increased policing does not correspond to the actual sites of the violence by non-state actors, purportedly non-state actors. So the state's response is to, you know, increase the kind of, not just the state, it's also residents of the city, et cetera, but the feeling is that everywhere, you know, residents are susceptible to being um, attacked by militants, but it doesn't actually correspond to the actual sites of the violence, right? And then the state is able to um, police its citizens, right? And the citizens are being undifferentiated, and that's the point of that I'm trying to make is that the idea of the threat from the outside, the foreigner, has been folded upon threats from within the society, right? So caste difference. Um, suburban residents versus village residents, et cetera, et cetera. So that's very important for me, uh, and I hope that that's somewhat clear from the map if you look at it more closely. Um, and the and that's sometimes hard to tell if you're not familiar with the city, et cetera, but I think that kind of parallels certain narratives in New York City as well, and the boroughs, and where policing occurs, and what's the visibility of that, what bodies are policed, et cetera. And then the second question is also a really I really appreciate it. Um, so I wanted to show, you know, I asked Leopold if I could show the table along with the map and then along with the images, because it's very important to me that there are, that, you know, the city, I mean, the state obscures the violence and it obscures the, the kind of architecture of its insecurity purposefully, so that you do feel constantly threatened and constantly unsafe if you're to just use the markers that are installed by the state in the city. And the table, right, is a certain kind of scale of abstraction. Then the map gives you a different sense. And then the images, I mean, the idea is, or the hope is that those kind of three apparatus of visuality, of envisioning it, help to supplement one another. Because the images alone will not give you that sense of the scale of the city, right? And that map of the city could not have come about without a kind of table of data, right? So. Um, so those three kind of modes of envisioning are very important in order to have any sense actually of what this the state kind of makes opaque, right? Um, so yeah, I hope that clarifies. And thank you for your question. 
does this question trigger any other? <laughs> it usually does, <laughs> by experience. <laughs> Even unrelated. Or I, are you waiting that I say, okay, well, and then you raise your hand? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so maybe this is a uh, attempt at hybrid um, the conversation. Um, I think this idea of opacity um, is very interesting in the you know, walled condition and what that does to uh, the people's aspirations who are being protected and the people outside who, um, whatever they might be doing. Um, and I wonder how that might relate to uh, fashion as well and this kind of idea of opacity and transparency from, you know. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's an interesting contradiction that happens in this kind of new approach to design that, that this kind of racially inclusive approach to design um, inclusivity is a strange thing for fashion, right? Fashion, even at the mass market level, prides itself on exclusivity. We are the only brand that has this. We did this first. We um, have this color. We have this cut. We and and it's it's um, really highly proprietary, right? And th there's all kinds of things going on right now with copyright and and the fashion industry lobbying um, to expand copyright to include fashion. It doesn't yet and Somehow the fashion industry um, has managed to grow and grow and grow even without protection. So this is my second project. Um, so there's that. But the idea about this kind of inclusivity as it being a transparency, right? That we want all these different consumers and we're really thinking in kind of social ways. We're thinking um, we have a social conscience. There's a kind of corporate activism going on with this racially inclusive design that I think is a kind of transparency that actually is um, that actually is a way to cover up what's really going on, right? Um, the Asian foot is important as, not as a racial typology, which it's actually not, right? But it's important as a typology of racial thinking, right? And it's an important, it's, and not just a typology of racial thinking in terms of, you know, cultural stereotypes in Google searches and things like that, but it's actually important as a way of understanding how fashion, um, the fashion, the Western fashion industry is thinking about, is thinking about different consumers. Asians have always been part of fashion since since the 1950s. Really, Asians have been a huge invisible labor force in fashion, and Asian bodies hadn't been thought about. Right? It's only now that we're seeing, you know. Um, Chinese billionaires by, you know, I don't know, it's like every month there's 30 more Chinese billionaires or something like that, right? Um, we're seeing this kind of amazing growth in China and different parts of Asia, and at the same time we're seeing recession in, in the United States and Europe. And so um, this kind of transparency is a way to cover up this new business model, right, that's trying to attract um, and make these consumers who they've never paid attention to before feel special, right? Um, with shoes that are not only made for Asians, but also only sold in Asia. And, and this is true for, for shoe collections and also fashion collections as well, too. So, so that's my answer to the, the opacity question, I think. Any other questions? Um, 
No, I think it's very interesting, and I appreciate the question also, like between these two very different um, kind of presentations. But I just like how you're talking about. I mean, transparency. You know, the the I think like opacity is very important for resistance, right, and for uh, resistance groups, etc. But transparency, and then I think it's often flouted as transparency when in fact it's kind of opacity. So the way you're talking about um, this idea that, oh, it's for the Asian kind of foot, when in fact it's actually for the Asian consumer. Right? Yeah, right, exactly. And that that's not made, that's not made transparent. And then like a link is like where I live in Brooklyn right now, there's like on Bergen Street, there's a huge crazy police mobile, white thing, I don't know what it's called actually, do you know? Somebody know the name of those, they have like a, it's like a crane with a little house that has a camera and then it has also always a police car 24 hours. So, but it, there's a name for the structure. It's just like, I, it's a watchtower, right? But it's on this like crane. It's like a very low level crane. So like that's, you know, the idea of being policed and watched and um, what's funny is like that kind of thing only <laughs> ensures crime on the adjacent blocks. You know, it's this kind of funny um, it ensures crime elsewhere. Um, I don't know what the link is to opacity and transparency, but there is one there <laughs> that the audience can imaginatively make. <laughs> Do you, okay. A skywatch? Okay. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's usually in like the neighborhoods, I think, that are being gentrified in a certain way um, much more heavily. Yes, hello. <laughs> um, in regard to the Asian feel, I was wondering if you are going to include consideration about the somatic, um, because there is obviously something, something very painful about wearing five. Uh, uh, For anyone. Not and, and so. I so I think uh, the somatic consideration is a political consideration. Liberation from the corset meant, you know, embodying this, this other racialized, you know, racialized body. 
I actually don't have a question. I just I just thought of a um, anecdote about like adding on to what you were talking about in terms of like fashion being race being embedded in fashion. Uh, I ha I have a funny story about something some something that's going on in the city, which actually shows how uh, race that's embedded in fashion may actually kind of like the if not the race itself, but the but the ra but the, but the taste associated with race or assumed taste of a race spread through fashion. Yeah. And this is about um, women plus size. Uh, apparently there's there's like, apparently, th and be because of the blog phenomenon, this goes around the world, right? Uh, br um, some of the Bronx malls are known to have the most amazing sort of like plus sizes for women. And these of course are mostly designed and marketed to, to African American and Latino women with particular taste which actually has nothing to do with being plus size, but it comes out of sort of like normal size ideas of fashion and beauty, right? But because women of other races are tired of just wearing plus sizes that don't make them look sexy or desirable, uh, these malls are sort of like mecca of, of plus size women who come to New York and find these stores and go there and shop hundreds of dollars for clothing that make them look comfortable and good. And through that, the taste or the assumed taste of African-American, Latino women of New York are kind of spreading around the world, <laughs> which is kind of fascinating. That's, that's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I, the w but the one th thought I did have is the idea of how taste works, and I mean work in the very literal sense of how it produces capital, right? Um, the, the other, s not the other side, but another side of that is um, the ways in which Asian tastes are producing particular kinds of capital, and you mentioned um, social media blogs. Um, blogs are also kind of, there's a much bigger argument to this, but blogs are also a way in which people's personal taste, I'm thinking particularly of personal style blogs, personal style blogs, their personal style bloggers' tastes are doing a lot of work, right? Creating a lot of capital for websites, for the, um, the um, their ads, et cetera. So that's, that's what it made me think of, but that's really interesting. I, I actually, of all the boroughs, I haven't yet been to the Bronx, so this makes me really wanna go, yeah. Yeah, just kind of continuing on, on this, I think it's really interesting how the how the Asian foot is is really just a ruse, right? So this is just a kind of it's a kind of a you know a part of a, a like a racial imaginary, but then but then what we are really talking about is 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 markets, right? So I'm I'm kind of curious about how then like but also in in, in w within within fashion, how do you see fashion also following? Like some kind of, I mean, it seems to be like some kind of like a like a racialization of of of, of capital flows, where capital has to kind of find certain niches. Like the niche can be, you know, I mean, it can be it can be racial or it can be, but but it has to be some kind of foundational 
idea, right? Yeah. Like race, w whether it is a race or whether it's not a race. But it has to find this kind of, uh, have you seen uh, other similar movements yeah. in fashion? I've been trying really hard not to say that I have a book coming out. I do have a book coming out. <laughs> um, and I talk about this. Um, and I talk about how t the, the book is actually about how taste, um, taste as work, right? And, and looking at elite Asian style blogs and how they do work in all sorts of um, cultural, economic, um, and social ways. Um, race has always been part of cap fashion capitalism. I mean, even from the very beginning, think about you know the sil Silk Road, right? And, and Marco Polo going into China looking for silk, et cetera, right? Race and fantasies about race have always been part of fashion capitalism, has always structured it. One of the reasons why we see so many um, apparel manufacturing is overrepresented with Asian women and girls, right? That isn't a coincidence, right? Stereotypes about submissiveness, stereotypes about docility, stereotypes about small hands and I guess small feet, um, right? Being nimble, you see the same kinds of things happening with things like um, massage parlors, the same stereotypes about hands and feet. There was a, um, there was, you know, that Charlie's Angels remake with Lucy Liu, et cetera. You all, those of you saw it, you remember, she actually dresses up in kind of orientalist garb and she jumps on Tim Curry's back. Do you remember, do you, is anyone gonna admit to watching this film? I watched this film, okay. Uh, she jumps on his back and it's this whole fetish thing, but then of course she ends up, she doesn't kill him, but she maims him, right? And so it's the dragon lady, right? So sexy, but she'll kill you, right? So, but that has nothing to do with race and fashion capitalism. But the idea of, of the small fingers, right, it being really good for the kind of work that apparel manufacturing needs is why we see an over-representation. Recently, we're seeing actually, um, if you can believe it, um, apparel manufacturing labor costs are even cheaper in Ethiopia than they are in China, right? Like by a tenth, right? So it, it costs a tenth of what Western brands pay to have their clothes made in China. It costs a tenth in Ethiopia. And so now everyone's calling Ethiopia the new China, right? This is really interesting about how race works. Um, but again, this idea that this, there's something about Asianness, there's something about Chineseness, which kind of becomes the umbrella for all Asianness. But there's something about Asianness that that is that. Um, fashion has always relied on to make its clothes and now to buy its clothes, right? But we're seeing this shift happening, which isn't to say that clothes aren't still being made in Vietnam, Bangladesh, you know, et cetera. But, but it's, it's an interesting moment now that we're seeing, you know, the Asian billionaires and how, they're, how race is shifting and how it structures fashion capitalism, for sure. But it's always structured fashion capitalism. Should, should we take it to the casual, spreaded <laughs> conversation uh, d dimension? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, before we do so, please, uh, 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 please uh, give a round of applause to... <laughs>
to our I always wanted to say give a round of applause, but uh, but yeah, to our fabulous since it's a it's a word the fabulous co uh, contributors. <laughs> when we were talking about how how to define how to define ourselves, we we settle on fabulous. I think that's that <laughs> and humble. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, s s thank you so much for coming today. It's so, so heartwarming to see how many of you are here, how many were here, and, uh, and uh, how many friends are here. And uh, so th thank you. That's really, really uh, moving, really, actually. Thank you.